Hey, kiddos, it's Merritt. I'm your host of this show that you're listening to right now. And this is Nick. I'm the producer and editor of the show that you're listening to right now. What are you doing here? Uh, I'm just popping in to tell the audience the thing that we're going to tell the audience. Oh, yeah, we have an announcement, I think, right? We're going to announce that uh, we're doing a special thing this month on Dad Feeling. It's like, it's pretty special. Um, We have been getting requests since we started doing this show for a group of dads that um, we never really got around to. A very special group of dads from a very special uh, media enterprise. And we thought, what better time to do this group of dads, which if you haven't like clued in yet, is Star Trek dads, than right now. I mean, there's this new series coming out um, in like about a month. And we just wanted to talk to some real big Star Trek fans who have so many feelings to share about these characters. And um, so this whole month, we are just doing Star Trek characters. It's Star Trek month on Dad Feelings. It is. That's what month it is. Um, And I hope, and I think that even if you aren't a Star Trek fan, I think you will still get something out of these episodes because, um, you know, there's a lot of lore to Star Trek, but I think... Um, at the end of the day, even in the future, even in space, dads are dads, right? Yeah, dads are dads. And uh, even if you haven't watched every episode of all of Star Trek in the proper chronological order, I think you can still get the feelings part. Star Trek 1, Star Trek 2, Star Trek 3, uh, Ivan's Revenge. Well, the thing about Star Trek 2 is that it actually happens... Because it, it takes place out of chronological order. So it actually happens between Star Trek 6 mm, and 7. Mm, yeah. Because that's when Han dies. Well, we focus mainly on the series from the 90s because those seem to be the ones that most people that we talk to have the most feelings about. So it's there's a lot of Deep Space Nine. There's a lot of Next Generation. And there might be some Voyager. There might be some Enterprise. There might be some original series. Who knows? Uh, we'll see where it goes. So uh, sit back. And relax and um, enjoy as we transport you to a galaxy far, far away um, oh, no. t- to enjoy a tale of Jedi. And this is bad. <laughs> this is bad. We'll cut this. We'll cut this. Enjoy the episode. final frontier <laughs> i couldn't not do it i could not do it kiddos welcome to dad feelings i'm Merritt, your host and joining me this week on a very special edition of dad feelings kicking off our month of of trek is dr anthony Oliveira. hello <laughs> academic at the university of toronto specializing in english literature and just Twitter personality extraordinaire. If you're not following him already, what's wrong with you? What are you doing with your Twitter time? Um, Probably something much healthier, actually. (laughs) He's joining me today. We're gathered here today to talk about uh, one of the biggest track dads. And my dad. Anthony's (laughs) actual father and possibly Wesley's father, according to some conspiracy theories I found online. (laughs) possibly there was there is some there might be some ferengi dna tampering happening but yes as far as we're gonna keep that he's my actual dad for sure he's your dad (laughs) his name is jean-luc picard 
And he has an English accent Ugh. for some reason, despite being French. But we'll right, get to that. Right. <laughs> so, okay. Well, English accents are really a matter of personality more than like uh, geographical uh, situation. I think that's like, true. If you have enough dignity, as you can actually see, if you watch, <laughs> I was watching All Good Things. If you watch All Good Things, the finale episode, you will notice that Doctor Beverly Crusher in the future. Somehow, by getting old and like accruing dignity, has also acquired an English accent out of nowhere. So it, <laughs> it's clearly something about universal translators. Maybe just like if a person has enough gravitas, it just starts giving them an English accent. I think. I think is that's how it works right. In the Star Trek universe. I do like that theory very much. Also, French is a an archaic language in the future, according to Star Trek. Um, well, I mean, yes. don't tell. Uh, French Canadians, that. Um, <laughs> well, it's a show about imperialism in a lot of ways. So it's true. It's true. The it idea is, of English is. ascendant and like French becoming this sort of uh, déclassé thing is, I think, like built into the DNA of the show. I think. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. So, okay, here's the thing. Let's back up a second and assume that there are listeners who have never seen Star Trek The Next Generation or maybe any Star Trek. I don't want you all to be turned off this month when we are talking about Star Trek because I think that there are some very interesting dads on Star Trek. And we are going to uh, just take a minute, I think, to sort of explain the context. So TNG is the second Star Trek series, I guess, unless you count the cartoon. Right, yes. Uh, I don't think most people do. <laughs> no, probably not so much. <laughs> Gotta be pretty hardcore. <laughs> and, and so TNG is uh, starting in the 80s and runs into the 90s. And uh, the, the captain... So one of the most striking differences for me between the original series, which I will say I have not seen much of, but you have Captain, uh, captain James T. Kirk in the original series, and you have Captain Jean-Luc Picard in... TNG and James Kirk is depending on who you ask either a beautiful lesbian or uh -huh. an adventure dad or possibly <laughs> both um and he is very much off in in search of adventure and right. um betting strange aliens and yes. uh getting into hijinks with his wife Spock and all of these things and <laughs> Picard is much more of a reserved person. Yes. He is much more of a philosophical person, someone mm -hmm. who's concerned with moral quandaries. Yep. He's less about uh, adventure than he is about expanding human understanding and the sort of intellectual pursuits. Um, and he is, in that way, a much quieter kind of person. But in that sense, it sets the stage for him to sort of become this father figure for his entire crew over the course of the series. Yeah. Yeah. Just even sort of philosophically and um, aesthetically, the shows are very different things. I mean, they arose in very different moments. Um, and there is something of like uh, a phrase that comes up a lot in, in next generation is cowboy diplomacy, um, which is like a phrase that keeps echoing back and forth between Picard and Spock because Vulcans are so long lived um, uh, Spock can be part of both shows, although the show is very nervous about having... Whenever it drops in an original franchise character, it gets quite anxious about it, uh, mm -hmm. increasingly more relaxed. But um, yeah, so the original Enterprise is much more of like a gee whiz um, adventure drama of the 60s. Like it comes out of the moment when like the Twilight Zone is happening, high concept episodes. Um, but Kirk is very much sort of a perpetual man-child in mm. them. Um, like you said, he's sort of like... He's like a, a kid's idea of what adventure is like. He's a cowboy. Um, 
And that's sort of like the show likes to think about that in a weird way. Like he, he has, he is himself kind of a weird dad at a different moment towards the end of the, um, one of the films find out like he may have had a child. Um, but the mother quite astutely has noted he's a, he would be a terrible dad and like cut him out. Whereas Picard is like, although he has actually no real children of his own, he is sort of the ultimate, um, patriarch patrician, um, figure. He is like, the great signifier of patriarchy on the show in, in a lot of ways and in a lot of like positive ways and negative ways. The show is pretty good about balancing that out. But um, yeah, he's a much more philosophical, sort of a gentleman scholar. Um, the Enterprise he commands has a very different mission and a different sort of vibe than the original Enterprise. It's the, the flagship of the Federation. We're in a different century now. Um, and he's often in a role of like, he's an ambassador um, he oversees a lot of first contact uh, missions where uh, the Federation very carefully um, is approaching these like emergent cultures, um, which again touches on that weird colonial vibe the show is really interested in exploring. But yes, he's a different, he's a, he loves Shakespeare, he loves music. Um, he's very, uh, he lives very much the life of the mind. He's sort of a, he's a horseback rider. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. He's all over the map. He's like a Renaissance man mm-hmm. uh, in a way mm-hmm. that Kirk absolutely is not. Yeah, and he, uh, at the start of the series, they are trying this new thing with the Enterprise, which is that they have families on board. Right, yes. The Enterprise um, uh, is, uh, everyone knows the design of the Enterprise. They're sort of the the big saucery part, uh, and then the sort of uh, the warp nacelles, the two long things at the back, and then the deflector dish uh, at the bottom. And the Saucer section is inhabited by uh, civilians, the civilian population. Um, the Enterprise is sort of weird. It's like, we're used to thinking of it as like a spaceship, but at different moments, different characters see it a different way. The Maquis, who are like the separatist group, call it a floating fortress at one point. Um, so it's like, it's a city, uh, it's a warship, but it's also a, a, a civilian population full of kids, right? One of the things that that means is that there's like, there's a kindergarten on board the Enterprise, which is something that Picard is actually deeply uncomfortable with. Um, the pilot episode is sort of bizarre because it goes kind of out of its way to make Picard a um, cold and um, uncomfortable figure. One of the mm-hmm. first things we learned about him is he's deeply uncomfortable with the fact that there are kids on board the ship. Mm-hmm. Our focalizer isn't Picard. It's actually uh, his first officer, William Riker, who is much more like Kirk. He's sort of the hero we expect the show to develop. Um, and Picard is really mean to him. The first thing he does <laughs> is like force him to separate the saucer and the uh, the lower decks. Um, so <laughs> so we're, we're, and when he does kind of accept Riker, one of the first things he says is make sure I'm not an ass in front of the children. Um, so it's one of the things the show is actually most interested in is sort of this like mean dad, uncomfortable dad, distant dad problem. Um, the other way it introduces it is by one of the first things the show does is introduce us to uh, a, a child character, Wesley, uh, Wesley Crusher, right? The, the boy genius. Um, he's sort of this weird self insert for kid audiences, but mm-hmm. he's also like a version of uh, Roddenberry himself. Um, but uh, his relationship with Picard, one of uh, Wesley's very first memories uh, is Picard delivering his father's body, uh, mm-hmm. Jack Crusher. Picard gives an order that leads earlier in his career, I believe on the Stargazer, which is his previous command. Picard gives an order that leads to the death of Jack Crusher. Um, and one of the uncomfortable 
sources of drama on board the Enterprise is that Beverly Crusher, his uh, his widow, who Picard is himself at various moments romantically linked to, and the surviving son are always around. The sort of reminder of uh, Picard's guilt, uh, his own sort of... Um, uh, he has a lot of problems with things he's done in the past, and the Crusher family is sort of this terrible reminder of that and the price that it has exacted on other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he's got a lot he's dealing with in his day-to-day. Yeah, absolutely. And Wesley is kind of this character who has, I think, just become completely maligned and like certainly is handled very poorly early on because he is kind of this viewer insert, Roddenberry insert, weird wonderkind character who um, just... Uh, you know, it shows up and is just like, seems to be just really irritating. Um, and just Picard just tells him to shut up constantly. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, it's not great. <laughs> <laughs> Wesley is a weird, I like Wesley a lot. He's sort of, it's a difficult character to like because um, I guess he is kind of, he does fall into that sort of Mary Sue kind of trope. Like he's mm-hmm. very, he's smarter than a lot of the adult characters. Um, we're told pretty early on that Wesley is the bearer of a special destiny. Um, the other thing is, I think audiences can kind of sense Will Wheaton's own discomfort. He was sort of not super, his his Star Trek years were not the happiest in his life, um, Mm. which he's talked quite a lot about. Uh, so it, it, it filters weirdly. I really liked Wesley when I was a kid. I think that he did for me what he was supposed to do, which is like, wow, I could like, I could be a member of the Enterprise. It like gave you a sort of phantasmatic way of imagining yourself on board. But he is a tough, he's a tough sell. I can understand why an adult audience, especially one as um, picky as the Star Trek <laughs> audience can be, might have been turned off. Um, but yeah, his relationship with Picard is very much a paternal one. Um, at various moments in the series, it sort of bubbles to the surface, this sort of like... The way that Wesley is self-consciously modeling himself on Picard, um, the way Picard is sort of trying to mold him into uh, learning how to be a dad through Wesley, um, mm-hmm. how to give support, how to be, how to deal with disappointment when Wesley is involved in sort of the scandal at Starfleet Academy. Um, there's a great episode where they're like lost in the desert together mm. with this like increasingly drunker dude who they've crash landed with. Right, last <laughs> They're mission, like trying yeah. to negotiate that. But uh I don't know. I mean, he's, Picard is a dad to lots of people, but Wesley is sort of the very first character that we see this sort of uh, paternal relationship budding with. Right, right. But not the only one, because there is one other really key kind of paternal relationship that, well, there are a couple others, actually. There's sort of the minor one of Ensign Rowe. Yes, the Ensign Rowe relationship. Um, yeah, I love that one, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons I love it is because it's like a great... Ensign Rowe is... Um, She's a Bajoran, uh, which the show uses, the show, this franchise actually uses in a lot of different ways to sort of signal um, sort of the boundaries of the Federation as the sort of neoliberal enterprise, as like a, a space where a certain kind of cultural uh, homogeneity is necessary. The, the Bajorans are not, the Bajorans are religious, which is actually quite rare in mm-hmm. Star Trek um, societies. Roddenberry thought that Religion was one of the things that society has to move past when it starts to live in the socialist utopia. The Bajorans don't conform. Um, they still worship the prophets. Uh, the Bajorans um, still wear uh, religious garments. Uh, one of the first things we see is Ensign Rowe steps aboard the Enterprise and is immediately told by uh, 
uh, Riker, who is usually a very sympathetic character um, for us, uh, she's immediately told to remove her religious garment, which is a, a an earring the that earring, she wears right. uh, to signal that she, yeah, she's attentive to the prophet's words, right? That's what that earring is for. Um, and Ro, that sort of remains one of the through lines of Ro's uh, arcs, is that she's a character who has, um, she's part of this Bajoran diaspora, the Cardassian uh, race, which is like this uh, lizard people. Um, sort of this weird pastiche of like every fascist movement of the 20th century have displaced her people. Um, she's been living as sort of this uh, uh, refugee for a long time. She fell in, she joined Starfleet, but was immediate, almost immediately um, uh, court-martialed uh, for disobeying an order that led to several deaths. Um, and she's brought on board the Enterprise against Picard's wishes Um because they need her to perform uh, some kind of infiltration operation. Um, but they quickly develop uh, this strange uh, father-daughter relationship where he sees in her sort of defiance um, an early version of himself. Mm -hmm. We learn throughout the series that Picard was himself quite a rebellious young man uh, that he hopes to mold. Um, uh, Michelle Forbes is an amazing actress, so it's like a great arc to watch. Michelle Forbes playing against um, Patrick Stewart uh, and it also ultimately ends up being quite a disappointing relationship for Picard because uh, she eventually is sort of inserted, embedded in this terrorist organization, the Maquis, mm -hmm. um, who are trying to, uh, they're basically people that the Federation leaves out to dry. They're, they're displaced right. by their negotiations with the Cardassians. Um, and so they're fighting this like separatist movement. Uh, but she realizes their cause is actually more just than uh, the Federation's. Um, and decides to stay with them, which breaks Picard's heart because she was sort of, of all the figures on the show, she's the one he takes the most interest in molding the career of and who seems most like him. Riker is not like him. Riker is, Riker is like Kirk, right? He's like mm -hmm. this sort of womanizing, off to rice at every turn kind of character. <laughs> um, but Roe is one of the, yeah, Roe is one of his children for sure. He sort of like amasses a surprising amount of them. I was sort of trying to think about like, who is Picard dad to? And the list is like 20 characters long. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but can we jump to Risa for a second? Because one of my favorite episodes of TNG is this episode where um, Picard is just overworking himself and like refusing to, to stop <laughs> for anything. And is this after the... No, this isn't because the time when he goes back to Earth is after the Borg thing. Yes, this yeah. is just he's That's he's the family. Episode. He's overworked. He's just tired. <laughs> he's tired. Dad's tired. He's yeah. working too hard, and um, yeah. And the crew basically forces him to take a vacation on Risa, which is this pleasure planet that right. reoccurs throughout Star Trek. Right, and, Riker's um, favorite place and like the least Picard place in the galaxy. <laughs> right, <Yeah>. Picard's <laughs> idea of a vacation is reading through like. What military history books there's a specific like, book it's like a, is it war and peace or it's like crime and punishment it's like some massive like victorian era tome and he's sitting on the beach in his robe and he's, he's someone keeps this like hot woman vash we eventually learn is keeps getting in his son and he gets madder he's like all i wish to do is sit with my book in the sun <laughs> <laughs> so he's like roped into this like Indiana Jones adventure um, <laughs> in his like skimpy outfits because on Risa you got to wear your like your bikini tops and your little caftans. Mm -hmm. um, but he's not roped into it out of any sort of like when you watch the episode, 
its structure seems to be a romance, but what actually appeals to him is not the like <laughs> sexy lady, but the fact that it gives him a chance to check out these archaeological digs. <laughs> because his favorite thing in the world is archaeology. It's one of his like passion projects. Is like he actually is a failed. It's funny because to us he's sort of like the flagship captain of the Enterprise. But to some people in the galaxy, he's like a failed archaeologist. He like once disappointed his mentor by refusing to finish his PhD. <laughs> and one of the episodes is <laughs> one of the episodes is this like um, grumpy old man shows up and is like, oh, Jean-Luc, way to go. Like he's like wasted his career as a promising archaeologist by becoming this like noted historical figure. And he gets a mission, which is one of my favorite episodes. Um, uh, oh, I forget what it's called. Oh, damn, I can't believe it. It's the most like wonderful Gene Roddenberry episode because it's like this um, great summer. It's right around when Roddenberry was dying, actually. And it's like a, an amazing farewell to him where Picard's old archaeology mentor gives him one last mission and like promptly dies where he's uh, tracing the origins of life. We eventually discover what they find is sort of this like... It's like Picard versus the Klingons versus the Romulans versus the Cardassians. Like these four camps are all racing to to find this archaeological artifact that they think is some kind of weapon. Um, and what they actually discover is this hologram. It's really sad, actually. It's this race of people who lived millions of years ago. Um, I think this series calls them the progenitors who uh, achieved space flight. They had like uh, had interstellar travel and they searched the whole galaxy and they found nothing. There was no other life than them. And their civilization came and went. Uh, and as sort of a last act, they seeded every life-bearing planet in the galaxy, every life-sustaining planet in the galaxy, with some DNA code, uh, which is the show's genius solution to the problem of, like, why does every alien race look like um, <laughs> humans with, like, weird little prop things? Because they're all from the same race, and they... It was this last gift of the progenitor so that what happened to them would not happen. So that there would be life abundant and like multiculturalism in the galaxy. <laughs> um, so it's this weird, neat way that the show seeds in Picard's archaeology interest. He's like, that thing we were talking about, he's like, he's a humanist in a weird way. Mm. Sort of the last humanist. Um, in the pilot episode, he gives a speech. Q is putting, Q is like this interdimensional um trickster god figure basically um and he's putting humanity on trial uh because he thinks it's worthless and is causing trouble and picard um says uh what hamlet said with irony i shall say with conviction what a piece of work is man how noble in reason etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm -hmm. and that's sort of like the mission statement of picard as a character is he's yeah. like um he he's a person who against the sort of bureaucracy of the federation He's interested in pursuing humanity for humanity's sake, even though he's surrounded by figures of like post-humanity, right? Like one of the characters he's dad to is Data, right? This yeah. sort of android being who in so many ways has surpassed humanity already, right? Like he can process the things we process in a, in a millisecond, but his interest is to become human. And Picard is the person who helps facilitate that. Data has lost his father, is the robot, the scientist who built him is gone. Um, and so his, his guide is... Captain Jean-Luc Picard, the show is interested in sort of like, uh, one of the last episodes is sort of about the Enterprise achieving sentience, and it self-consciously quotes the Tempest. Picard is like a Prospero, sort of the summation of human art, 
that is getting ready for the thing that comes after human art, which is like data, which is this like emergent consciousness, all this sort of stuff. So he's a dad in like a civilizational way too. He's sort of a mm. proto father. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Talking about the, the, the humanism stuff did make me want to talk more about data because data is like the main other fathering relationship that I see on TNG. Um, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. And it's also interesting. Like you say, a father. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's one of the best episodes of the series is the one where data builds for himself a child um, because he's he's sort of discovered that being human involves having children, right? Um, and he creates Lal, this uh, this construct that is based on him, but is designed to evolve differently. And one of the first things he does is uh, let Lal choose a gender, mm-hmm. a, a species and a gender for itself, um, which is an amazing sequence where, like, poor Deanna Troy, the ship's counselor, falls asleep <laughs> in the holodeck because they spend thousands, they model thousands of gender variants <laughs> and species variants, and Lal eventually settles on being a human woman. Um, but it's amazing watching Data sort of give her the space of becoming a, a, a her own being, which is something he learns from Picard, right? Um, are you a Data fan? <laughs> I am. I love Data. And it's interesting because Picard in that episode is initially really hesitant and and kind of like upset actually that data didn't tell him uh, that he was working on this project and data's like well would any other member of the crew consult you for their (laughs) reproductive decisions (laughs) and he's like trying to be like well no it's different but then he's spent whole episodes arguing (laughs) that it isn't different or that's correct maybe it is but not in any meaningful way like there is the episode where basically data's existence as like a sentient being is on trial and um and like someone wants to disassemble him basically and figure out how he works yeah and picard um, is like oh what's his name maddox yeah, yeah bruce maddox that's um, right and picard is like no you can't do this and they have to do this big trial thing where Riker is forced to argue uh against data being uh ascension being that's right yeah and uh picard must argue for his individuality and like again like he becomes sort of this like he ushers in a new way of being as much as the show is interested in its weird way in being human. Um, he's there to usher in a new kind of being. And that's one of the key episodes to think about it is where he's like, he thinks of data, not as, um, not as something that is constructed, not as a manufactured, uh, entity, but as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and his argument is like, well, if, if he, it's weird that he's the one who objects to law because he says in that episode, if data has children, we can't just create a slave race. Right. Like, right. Um, Ronald D. Moore, the, the showrunner for, well, he was the writer, but he becomes eventually the showrunner on Battlestar Galactica. And it's interesting watching these moments where, uh, emergent consciousnesses and artificial intelligence, uh, become a sort of keynote for the series. The other end of that is the Borg, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, this sort of the risk, the risk that, um, next generation is always interested in is, uh, the loss of humanity, right? Like mm. what happens if all this technology and all this advancement makes us lose the individuality that Picard uh, treasures so much, right? Uh, which is what makes the his assimilation to the Borg, becoming lo- Locutus of Borg is his title. He's uh, sort of the ambassador of this invasion by the Borg. They take him and semi-assimilate him. He's still sort of weirdly an individual, um, but he oversees the devastation of the Federation the, the Federation Armada, the Starfleet Armada at Battle of Wolf 359, he kills 11,000 people in a matter of hours. Um, 
for which he never really forgives himself and for which other characters never really forgive him. I don't know if you're talking mm-hmm. about uh, Benjamin Sisko on any future podcasts, but... Oh, we are, yeah. <laughs> Picard is, for Sisko, the ultimate evil. Uh, Picard, Deep Space Nine is a show that is interested in sort of critiquing all these things that Next Generation takes as given. And on Deep Space Nine, Jean-Luc Picard is the ultimate colonial figure, right? He's sort of this old white British guy who shows up and tells you what your job's going to be. And Cisco just completely chafes because Picard is the person who killed his wife when he was Locutus of Borg. Right. Um, and the whole show, again, like picks up all that Cardassian Bejor stuff where it starts thinking quite self-consciously about, well, to what extent is the Federation's neoliberal project actually just a new form of colonialism where the Bajorans are made to conform, where the violence is less visible, but uh, just as horrifying. Um, is this just one of the questions you face not as interested is, is this actually what seems to be a humanitarian project actually just an attempt to get a toehold on one of the most valuable pieces of military property, which is the wormhole. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and Picard is the villain of that, right? Like he accesses the sort of negative version of him is this locutus that bubbles up. One of the figures he's a dad to, too, is Hugh, uh, the Borg, the drone that the, <laughs> the Enterprise sort of stumbles upon, um, that Picard has no interest in speaking to. Geordi and Hugh develop this uh, relationship. Sort of this lost drone who is uh, gradually rediscovering his individuality. Uh, and Picard refuses to talk to him mm-hmm. the whole episode, even when like other victims of the Borg, like Guinan, his like, friend, tells him you must talk to him. And when Picard finally approaches him, Hugh doesn't see Picard. He sees Locutus. And he has this sort of like odd, almost religious experience that he's meeting Locutus. And Picard plays into it. And he starts speaking as Locutus and says, like, you must assimilate Geordi. Resistance is futile. And Hugh says, resistance is not futile, right? <laughs> this mm. amazing comeback to that, um, that loss of humanity that Picard always risks, that the military aspect of his life always threatens to turn him into, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah, <sure>. yeah. <laughs> I mean, the show doesn't really ever end. Uh, it, it has all good things and then continues to spiral out into a few movies until I, the famous Simpsons line, until this becomes unprofitable, right? Like it doesn't have an ending, <laughs> but the last time we see him is in Nemesis. Um, one of the last figures he's dad to is weirdly his own clone Shinzon, mm. uh, played by Tom Hardy. Uh, <laughs> Tom Hardy <laughs> shaved head at his most twinkish, right? Like just before mm-hmm. he start, turned into like buff muscle stud, Tom Hardy, he was the clone of Jean-Luc Picard um, but Jean-Luc Picard at his most monstrous military prowess. It's sort of Nemesis closes the Romulan arc of the show, the sort of geopolitics of mm-hmm. the Alpha Quadrant end up ending with that series, with that ep- that movie. Um, and Picard sees a version of himself that gives up on that sort of humanist intellectual pursuits just to become the ruthless military commander he actually could have always have been. Um which is what Tom Hardy's character ends up being. He's sort of this like clone that's defective clone that's raised in like a, a Romulan labor camp and just becomes this like Napoleon who like very expediently seizes control of the Romulan star empire and then uh, proceeds to invade the rest of the alpha quadrant and earth. Um, and that's, that's like the, the other thing Picard could easily have been his whole narrative arc. He starts life like living in this little French village supposed to be like running a vineyard um and his ambition takes him into the stars but his ambition always is always already prepared to, to mutate into something 
dangerous and malevolent. Yeah. Um, Locutus, Shinzon, they're all sort of versions of that, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And being a dad keeps him from that, right? Like, mm. he has to relearn his humanity by teaching other people about it. Uh, whether it's Jason Vigo, his sort of, like, fake son that uh, he... Picard also killed a Ferengi very early in his career. And his father has been trying to get revenge on him for all these years. Um, so he sort of engineers a fake son for Picard just so he can kill him and get revenge on him. But Picard still has to, like, teach this guy about, like, responsibility and being your own person. Mm-hmm. Um he always sort of finds these orphaned children and has to like, he moves into their lives for a minute, is a good dad for them for a while, and they sort of surpass him or move on, right? Yeah, no, that's <laughs> sort of his whole thing. Um, Tasha Yar is another one of those sort of orphans that he picks oh, up. Oh, God, she sort of yeah. Grows up on this. <laughs> another tragic loss for Picard, right? Like he, he takes in this, uh, this young woman who survived this terrible upbringing and sort of is trying to teach her the virtues of of uh, the Federation and Starfleet as like an enterprise, um, until she is, of course, tragically killed by a mud monster. Uh, <laughs> no. um, yeah, the only other I think episode that I wanted to mention is um, uh, the Inner Light. Oh my God! Yes, uh, is one of the greatest or like you know most well received Star Trek episodes of all time. Um, and really, like, basically, the, the sort of, like, short version of that episode is Picard lives an entire lifespan in, like, 22 minutes or something. Um, mm-hmm. It lives, yeah. lives <laughs> this life. I think. <laughs> yeah, it lives this life on this, uh, in this dead society that, like, in the last days of this dying world. And, um, and just, like, uh, it never really, like, loses that like that it's sort of with him for the rest of the series like he keeps this flute yeah. with him he be, had become he had become this sort of yeah. like expert at the flute but he becomes he becomes like his two children i think yeah and a grandchild right yeah he's around children yeah which he's always i mean it's weird because it like it plays so against type for his character because he is so uncomfortable with children he becomes this very paternal grandfatherly i mean the patrick stewart we kind of know the sweeter man uh, that Picard is always terrified of being, but it also oddly makes him more jaded and insular after it happens. He's basically lives, he lives a full lifetime in this period. He has children, grandchildren. He, uh, he has his own family, which is always the weird fantasy that lingers outside Picard's life. When he's trapped in the nexus in generations, we see him with celebrating Christmas with the family he never had that he sacrificed for his career and for his own, um, sort of, <laughs> the life of the mind, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet the effect is almost to make him more afraid to reach out because he has a yeah. full lifetime of memories, undiluted, right? They don't fade. He still possesses the ex. He never played really an instrument before. And after that episode, he's now like an expert level uh, on the, on the Resican flute, right? Um, playing that beautiful melody. Um, it's actually quite lovely. Apparently it's one of the most downloaded things from Star Trek ever is the, the sort of sound of the family Picard weirdly had and never had at the same time, mm. right? It's sort of that mournful and the whole civilization that he's the last, it's weird. It ties up his archeology span obsession because he is now a living archive, right? Mm-hmm. He's the only thing that survives of that whole culture that they gave as sort of a gift to him, but also as like 
a weird responsibility that's too much to bear. His traumas are amazing, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> they just keep stacking up. Poor man. Like, no wonder. Ugh, just have yeah. very, some dark nights. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a really touching episode, that last speech uh, where she um, she talks about how we've actually been dead for so long, you are all that's left, is really deeply moving. One of the best moments in the series, I think. Maybe one of the best episodes in the series. <laughs> Poor man, though. <laughs> yeah. Poor dad. Oh, poor dad. <laughs> well, um, I think we've covered all that I want to talk about. Is there anything else that you think we missed that you want to get at? Oh, no. I, I mean, there, it. we didn't even talk about Captain Picard Day when the... <laughs> Sorry, when what? the children throw one of the one of the annual things on the Enterprise is Captain Picard Day, where he has to go in and look at all the like uh, models of him and oh paintings they make of him. Uh, the children, yeah, <laughs> I haven't great seen that. Scene. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> and like Riker picks up one of the little Picard dolls and starts doing his voice, and then of course, just as it happens. Um, an admiral calls in, so Picard is talking to this admiral. He's already deeply uncomfortable, and now his <laughs> boss is on the phone, like on like FaceTiming him with this Captain Picard banner above his head. Um, <laughs> the other episode to think about dadliness with Picard is disaster. Um, it's one of my favorite episodes. It's a great episode for Deanna too. Uh, the Enterprise suffers this like catastrophic failure, and all its sections get cut off from each other. Um, and suddenly Deanna Troy is like the, the lead, um, the, the highest ranking person on the bridge who sort of, and she's like fighting with Ensign Rowe, who's like, we have to save the ship. It's going to explode. But Deanna doesn't want to risk the casualties. It's a great, great episode. It's sort of like a, like a Titanic episode. Um, mm. but Picard's story in that he's on a, he's on the turbo lift with three children who he's already made one of them cry. <laughs> <laughs> um and they like won a contest to spend a day with the captain and he's like deeply uncomfortable with the whole thing <laughs> and now he's got three crying children in a in a broken turbo lift that he's got to like get to safety and they keep like bursting to tears he like makes one of them his first officer this little girl who's like the most nervous he's like you're the first officer you got to be brave it's like a great great dad picard one shot uh, if you haven't seen it, you have to watch. It. I'm going to watch disaster. that one because I'm just realizing he named someone <laughs> executive officer in charge of radishes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my god. That's right. Yeah. One of the kids is like a super weird little kid. I don't remember what he did. He like did a project on worms or like turnips or something. And Picard's mm -hmm. like, oh, that sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so good. And they give him a plaque at the end. It's so sweet. Oh my god. <laughs> Give it a go. Absolutely. <laughs> that episode is also actually the one where uh, Chief O'Brien becomes a dad. Oh, well, there you go. It's all thinking all about it. Oh, wow. I forgot. Oh, that's right. He's um, uh, Keiko gives birth in 10 forward and Worf's the one who delivers it. It's amazing. Michael Dorn at his funniest, uh, like giving her like Lamaze lessons, but in his very clipped like Klingon tone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so good. That is, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, if you're going to think about dads, that's a great episode to do it in. And I mean, Miles O'Brien could have his own Star Trek dad episode, right? Like, there's that amazing episode where um, his daughter, uh, what is her name? Kate, uh, Molly. Molly. Have you seen the one where she, like, ages to, like, adulthood? Because uh -huh. they lose her on the planet, and suddenly she's a grown woman, and she's like this feral, like, Casper Hauser situation. <laughs> that one's yeah. great, too. Oh, man. 
many Star Trek dads. <laughs> I can't wait to hear the rest of the series. <laughs> so many, so many dads, so little time. But um, yeah, I think that'll do it for the for Picard. Um, thank you so much for coming on. I couldn't think of someone better to. Oh no, to this talk was such him. a pleasure. I could talk about Jean Luc Picard for like the rest of my life. So <laughs> <laughs> I grew up running home to watch episodes every day at five p.m. Like he, I learned like what it is to be to try to be a good person from him, I think. Um, so he really does feel like a dad of mine. Mm. Well, um, do you want to tell people where they can find you on Twitter? We mentioned your very good Twitter account, but um, we didn't tell people where it is. Oh, yeah, sure. I'm, uh, I'm, at, I'm at Mia Koopa, as in at me, M-E-A-K-O-O-P-A. I am a Koopa, Mia Koopa. <laughs> mea culpa etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah <laughs> and my nonsense is all there great awesome well thank you again and um everyone else uh and maybe you too look forward to the rest of uh of track month here at dad feelings oh my god i won't miss it <laughs> i will see you again next week bye kiddos dad feelings is hosted by merrick k and produced and edited by me nick bravo Dad Feelings is a part of Stay Me, the world's only podcast network. We're entirely listener-supported. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron of Stay Me at dadfeelings.com support. Our theme music is Swell Content by Speedy Ortiz off their album Foiled Gear. Thanks to Car Park Records and Sadie Dupuy for letting us use it. Please mention us on Twitter. We're at dadfeelings and at staymeanco. Or rate and review us in iTunes. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening.